Well, hello there, and welcome to this Calvary Longview audio message. We're so glad you've chosen to take a moment to discover with us the truth that can be found in the Bible, and we pray that you'll be blessed by what you hear. Today, Pastor Al is going to be sharing with us a message from the book of Jeremiah. We can't wait to get into God's Word, so crack open your Bible, grab your note-taking tools, and we'll get started. Jeremiah 17. We're going to look at a couple of chapters here tonight as we continue our study uh, through Jeremiah. Wednesday night, we're going to be finishing, or excuse me, Sunday morning, we're going to be finishing 2 Thessalonians, moving right into 1 Timothy. So, uh, be a good time on Sunday. So, Jeremiah has been, uh, you know, in this conversation with God, God's been giving him the message to give the people uh, of Judah because of their sin, the punishment's going to come upon them. And then the Lord had been speaking to him in chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, about a restoration time of Israel. And we know that uh, we uh, would come about in Nehemiah's day after they served their time in captivity. We know that uh, they would be come back to the city to occupy it. We also know in 1948, we saw that take place uh, in, our, in our days to where they became a nation once again, where God, God gathered his people and became a nation. And then we know in the end, during the millennial period, there's going to be an ultimate uh, restoration that will come to the nation. And so we pick things up here in, in uh, chapter 17, and where the Lord has been speaking to Jeremiah to the people since chapter 16, verse right around 16, uh, continuing the punishment that was coming upon them. It was imminent. The imminent punishment is coming upon Judah. And so that's where we get to pick it up at here in verse 1. We begin and he reads, we have this, the sin of Judah is written. Now remember, these guys have gone on and on and on and on. They're backslid in their ways. And he just says that the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablets of their heart and on the horns of your altars. And so, you know, I was thinking about this today, and I, years ago, I don't even know where I got it. I I, I think one of the stores had it, one of the uh, auto parts stores, but I have an engraving tool. You know, you plug it in, and it has that point on it that kind of vibrates around so you can engrave your tools so that nobody can take them. And claim them. And so, you know, and it didn't take long to put Al in there. But then they probably make, they probably make different, you know, you can make a whole lot of names from Al. But you don't, you don't use a felt pen because people just erase that. And then you don't, you know, just put tape on it or whatever. All that stuff can come off, you know, ink pen or whatever. But to have an engraver, you know, you think about that engraver on for the tools. They kind of claim that they're your tools forever. It's etched in there. That's what the Lord is saying here. You know, they're, it's like into their sin. Their, their sin is engraved upon their hearts. Their hearts are stone. And, and it's like they, they've just been, it's been embedded in them. And you're going to see that even today uh, at the end of chapter 18, that they're not going to change. They don't want to change. You know, it's, it's good that we remain pliable, that we're changeable, that we desire to be changed. You know, when we're wrong, especially, right? When we're wrong, that we're just like, Lord, change me, have your way. And here we have it to where we see is, uh, Judah, 
just their, their sin being etched into their own lives, etched into their hearts. It's like, you know, um, just the reference there. Nothing superficial about their sin. It wasn't something that they just fly by night, but it had been a part of their lives and etched in their lives. And so again, on the tablets of their hearts, on the horns of your altars. In verse 2 he says, while their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. The problem here is that it wasn't just affecting the adults, but the, the adults, what they do, the children would see what they do, right? I mean, it's only obvious. Your children see what you do. Your grandchildren, your some of you maybe your great-grandchildren, I don't know, but they're watching you. You know that video we show on Father's Day, uh, I just love it. Haven't found one to top it yet, but it's, it's, I'm watching you, Dad. It's a little kid watching his dad wherever he goes, whatever he's doing. My daughter and I have a picture of the day we were baptized together, and I'm standing like this, and I'm watching the other folks being baptized. Didn't pay any attention until somebody gave me a picture. She's standing the same way, the same way, just looking out there. What's up, you know? But it's just the same way, like father, like daughter, like daughter, like father, you know. It, it, it's, it's just that, your children. And our children are watching us, and their children, see, the things that they do wasn't just going to affect them. It was affecting their children because their children were watching it. The walls, the walls in the home, I remember as a young, young boy that you can hear things through the walls, right? I mean, mom and dad, the arguments, everything going on. You can hear everything they said. It was like, you know, I could say get a room, but in our place, the rooms were all connected together, a real small, real small house, you know, real small duplex. But the children are going to see, they're going to watch us and their next generation is watching us. I think the next generation wants to know, is God real? And who are they, who are they seeing it? How are they seeing it? Is it being displayed with, you know, God hates signs, you know, or is it like, you know, you must turn, you must, you must, or you know what I mean? It's like, no, no, no. They want to see the realness of God. They want to see the truth of God. They want to see what it's like for men and women to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, that's palatable, you know, that's just not based on a bunch of hatred or a bunch of, you know, legalism. It's about God's grace. They want to see that. And so, you know, it says, by the green grass and on the high hills, verse 3 says, Oh, my, my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth as your treasures and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourselves, shall not go uh, of the heritage which I gave you. And I will cause you to serve your enemies and in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled the fire in my anger which shall burn forever. That's a pretty strong statement. And you got to remember, the Lord had given them a great start. The Lord had purchased them, brought them out, brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into the land that he promised to their forefathers. Everything that God said he would do. And he was faithful, very faithful to them. And even in their rebellion, he was still faithful. And so the, the problem was that they messed things up. And Judah was part of that. Israel was part of that. The nations just split from God. They split from one another. They end up splitting from God. And they messed things up because they were following the dictates of their own heart. You're going to see that at the very end. Very sad statements. That God's mercy is still being poured out. His grace is being poured out. And he desires that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. But people are just being, you know what? I don't want to hear it. 
That's pretty much what they're saying. And here's a people that their fathers, their forefathers, were delivered. They were delivered out of Egypt. And it's like what I tell my children. I say, you know, when I came out of the world, when God saved me, I came out of the world. And so everything that wasn't really of the Lord, I didn't want any business with. I just want, you know, it wasn't a legalism. It was like, listen, it didn't do me any good in my past life. I just don't want no part of it. And so there was this thing of this, the, the, the path that I walk is straight, it's narrow. It's more narrow than, you know, than most. And it's not because of legalism, it's because I've been there, done that. I don't need those things to broaden my path. I just want to walk in that narrow path. I want to walk where God's riches are. And I tell them that because, because they didn't go through the things that I went through. And I don't want them to have to experience the thing just for the sake of, well, it didn't do dad any good. So, but about us, we're stronger, you know, I don't want them to go that route. I want them to see that, you know, what it is, is it's like God wants us on a straight, narrow path because he satisfies. It's not because we need other things to satisfy, but he truly does satisfy. But here you have the, the children of Judah that they were, had been trying to satisfy the flesh of their heart. They've been longing after things that, that, you know, he was telling them not to do. And then they were giving, they weren't, um, uh, he, you know, they weren't giving these things up. And so he says, you know what, I'm going to send the enemy. I'm going to send the Babylonians. That's what it's going to be. And they're going to triumph over you. But this is the way it is for backsliders. Listen, we've been praying for backsliders since uh, Judah, or since uh, we start our, start our study through Jerusalem, because we know that it needs God's intervention upon their lives. We need God to bring them back home. We need Him to bring, you know, God call out to these people. But the way it is for backsliders is they walk away for they walk with them for a minute, they walk away, and then all this condemnation is upon them, you know. And they just live in this this world. They don't, you know, the, you know, they don't deal with things because their their heart is evil. They're the, you know, they're just craving in the cravings, and they have more cravings with their flesh. And before long, he says, you know, I'm going to be chasing you, and um, they don't like it. But again, he's just telling them right here. He's saying, you know what? I will cause you to serve your enemies. I mean, you're out there already. They're already out there playing playing around with them. They're serving these idols. They're doing these things that uh, the Gentiles were doing at the time. The pagan nations were doing at the time. And they had followed suit with that. So there's a series of follies that he's going to bring out. The first one is found in verse 8. He says, the folly of trusting man. He says, thus says the Lord, curses the man who trusts in man and makes uh, flesh, his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. And again, typical backslider. Uh, many become embarrassed because they want to, you know, Jesus is calling them, but then they have to show up in the church again and they're embarrassed and they're trusting in themselves or they're trusting in stuff that they know. Well, I'll just do it on my own. God's grace blows past having to do it on your own. His grace is so incredible. You know, I'm not sure... I mean, you guys know this. What's the, the very center verse of the Bible that everything is hinged upon? Psalm 118 verse 8 says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's really where it is. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. So this is what it is. It's better that we trust in the Lord. Don't trust man. But put your confidence in God. You see, the kings of old were told to write out the law. 
And for the purpose of when you write things out, you handwrite things out, you're writing them out, you know what it says. And you know in there that it says, do not trust in your chariots and horses, your armies. Don't trust in these things. Because what I want you to do is I want you to get a grip on trusting the Lord. Get, trust me, God would say. I want you to have strength not in your military might, but in me. I want your, your strength to be me. I want your faith to be in me. So they would write out a letter of the law for themselves so they would get used to the idea that God's in control. Oh, yeah, the Lord. I remember writing this out. Remember, you would have to write, I will not, I will not. How many guys had to write that on, on a blackboard? I will not. And you go, I, 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 will, 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 not, 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 not. Talk, 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 you know. It's kind of the way it was. Well, if you write it out, you're going to remember that, you know. So they're writing this thing out. But the question might be, listen, do you find yourself trusting in God or do you find yourself trusting in man? You might think, no way, I don't trust him, man. Are you kidding me? God's my Savior. I, I love Jesus. Well, listen, do you try and what happens when you fail? You, you, you commit a sin. And you're like, man, why did I go there? Why did I do that? I can't believe I found myself in that. Do you try and find yourself working your way back to God? Or do you really trust in his grace and repent and move on? See, a lot of times we got to do things to make it better, right? We, we, we're really trusting maybe our ability, but he's saying, don't even try that. But trust in God, trust in the grace of God. Look at verse six, he says, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert. It's all dried up. When the wind takes hold of him, it blows some bramble bushes, it blows the, um, the tumbleweeds all over. That's called a lawn in Arizona, the moving tumbleweed. And shall not see when good comes. So the person, when a person trusts in themselves, they never see any good come. Come of it. They're going to get burned out. You're going to get tired. You're going to get beat up. You're going to fail again and fail again. So he says, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land, which is not inhabited. So Jeremiah is going to go from there. He's going to say, you know what? It's, you don't want to find yourself trusting in men. And then he comes to this place to where he takes this imagery from Psalm 1. And he's, you know, blessed is the man who walks on the counsel of the ungodly. It's in contrast to that, this tree is planted by living waters. Look at verse 7. In contrast to verse 6, verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and, who hope, who, who, and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall buy like a tree planted by the waters which spread out its root by the river, roots by the river, which shall not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. And so a righteous person is, uh, you know, blessed because of his, not, not, not because of what he does, but because his confidence is in the Lord, his faith is in God. I'm just trusting God. Look, there's nothing I can do. God, God can do. I can go to him and say, God, you got to wash me. You got to cleanse me. I, I can't believe I was doing this stuff or whatever. And then you trust God that he's forgiven you, right? No longer carrying around. You're, you're not carrying around condemnation because you're walking in the spirit and you're, you know, walking after him. Remember, faith in God. Abraham, all the, the things that he did. David, all the things that he did. All these mighty men of God, they didn't, they, they weren't counted, their, their works weren't counted to them as good, as faith or as righteous. But it was their faith that was counted to them. Is it called imputed righteousness? That's what they get. That's what we get, is imputed righteousness. See, when difficulties come, 
the way of the man who's walking in the counsel of God. He has no fear. He's just trusting the Lord. He's going to continue to prosper because God is for him. God is walking before him. He's going to bear fruit in the, in, even in the, uh, the dry times. He's going to come through those things with God in control. See, whether it's Judah or you and I today, the Lord, you know, following the Lord and after his ways, it may not be easy. It's not always like, ah, so easy. But it's, it's, it's necessary that we continue to stay the course. It's necessary, but we're just going to trust in him. And no matter how hot it gets, no matter how hot the trials get or the time, the devastating times that we walk through, it doesn't matter how hot they get or how, how many trials we go through or, you know, we get bumped up along the way. The Lord is faithful to deliver us all. He will be faithful every single time uh, to keep us from the, you know, possibility of further, you know, uh, damage. But that's the Lord. You see, Judah was left exposed to the torture of the Babylonians, and they're going to feel the heat. And this is what God is referring to. Don't trust in man. They had trusted in Egypt, Syria. They had trusted in all the nations around them. They call upon war. They got in the habit of making deals with other kings, other nations. Hey, will you go to war with me? Hey, would you go to war with me? Hey, I'm going to face these guys off. You want to go to war with me? Nobody was calling upon the Lord. See, it trickles down. That's why nowadays things are trickling up a little bit because there's changes being made that are godly changes in our country. But people are saying, I don't want to make that change because it's been so long that anybody said, oh, you mean you're sticking to your words? What do you mean by that? And you see changes that are being made and people are saying, wait a second, we're not going to trust in man. Even though, and I'll say this, Pray for our country because just because the economy is good doesn't mean God is thrilled with it. We need to turn to God. He wants our hearts. The nation, the church, he wants our hearts to be turned towards him. The economy is great, everybody's happy, but don't get your eyes off the prize. The prize is Jesus Christ. And he wants the hearts of America. You know, what are we going to do? We're not going to be saved because we get millions of dollars in the bank. We live for Jesus in the drought and in excess. We live for Christ. So not only do we not put our trust in men, but then we're cautioned to not even trust our own hearts. Look at verse 9. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things. You know what that means? Your heart is fraudulent. It's like corrupt. My mind is the same. And desperate, desperately wicked. Who can, he says, who can know it? Well, God tells us that. I'm thankful he does. There are none righteous, no, not one. He tells us these things. But the answer to that, who can know it, is the Lord. Look at verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart, attest the mind. He says, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So, he tells us that. He says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. It's a fraudulent heart. But then he says, I'm your help. And in the reality of our heart disease, he's the only help that we would ever need. But he knows it. Here's the one who created us and it was corrupted. Our hearts are corrupted by sin. But he says, but I, I'm the remedy. You know, I, I look at the world today and probably because I've just been, you know, dealing with it, going through with somebody else. And then I read the paper about uh, Chris Dolman. Some of you may know him or may not know him. He was a uh, defensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings. And he just died of 
I, I believe it was brain cancer. And for those of you who know, my niece had passed away a Sunday due to brain cancer. And cancer eats people up. But imagine that we have the answer to the greater problem than any cancer, and that is the cancer of sin. And we have the answer to that through Jesus, right? We have the answer. And he's the answer for the entire world that we won't live forever here on earth, but we will have everlasting life when we go home to be with him or when we're done here. And so the Lord here says, you know what? I, the Lord, I search the heart. And the Lord knows. He knows all of our hearts. He knows the hearts of every man, woman, and child in this world. He knows the hearts than we do in reality, better than we do in reality. And he wants to spare us from the ugly consequences that are out there that come from the decisions that are made when we put our trust in ourselves or when we have our own faith in ourselves or, you know, when we're trusting in our own heart. He says, don't do it. You know, our hearts are wicked. And so this testing of the mind brings the idea, when you think about that, he's testing the mind. It's like he's tugging on the reins. He's not yanking, but he's tugging on the reins to see if he's got control or we got control. You know, in the heart, who's making, who's calling the shots? In the heart, who's the one that is, you know, the, the, the one, the commander in chief? See, remember, the, he says that the mind feeds the heart. We know that. The mind is one of the gates, the ear is one of the gates that feeds the heart. And then we're feeding ourselves. And so we got to think, do we have rest in the day? Do we have peace? When you lay down at night, is your mind going, your heart going, I'm anxious, I can't sleep. You know, and it's just like, wait, wait a second. The Lord says, you know what? Feed on me. I know the heart. I have the answer to the heart. And the hearts are anxious. And he knows that about Judah, he knows that about you and I, and they had fallen so far away from the Lord. They had fallen way far from the Lord. And so he's saying, you know what? Uh, Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. Listen, we will reap that to which we have sown. And remember the old saying, you can fool man some of the time, but you can fool God none of the time. And how true that is. Because we can't, fool the Lord. And he goes, I know the heart. So it's like, here's a surgeon that says, you know what? I've got the answer, but I'm going to have to do surgery. I'm like, is there any other way? No, no, no. We got to cut this out. And so he goes into the heart, cuts it open, you know, comes into the heart and seals it back up real nice and neat. But he shows and he exposes things so that we might repent of those things. Lord, yeah, take this, get this out of here. I want this out, you know, take all these things. But our hearts are the very core of our decision-making process, right? The very things that we make decisions on. You think, um, I was listening to a a pastor, he was talking about everybody's trying to tighten up their core. That's what my doctor tells me, right? So my my, uh, chiropractor tells me, he says, you got to tighten up your core. You, you you want your back to operate well? I said, my back's in pain. He says, well, tighten up the core, stay hydrated. But that's kind of true for us too, is it not? We're to stay hydrated by the water of the word and we're to tighten up the core and the core is the truth, the the, the very core of our decision-making process. What are we making decisions on? How are we basing decisions? You know, what what gives us the nod for yes and the the nod for no? See, we need the Lord to assist us in that. We can't cut him out because we need to have the spirit of God direct our lives, not our emotions. That's why the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to be 
pierce between the bone and the marrow. So he's able to cut in there. And the word of God is so important. It hydrates and then it cuts in and says, ah, emotions, you're not going to be involved in this decision. We're going to let the spirit take over here. And that's what we want to do. Second Peter verse three, four, uh, chapter 3, verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. That's what we want to do. We want to find ourselves walking with the Lord, having his word wash us. Having his word just wash over us, wash our minds, wash our thinking. But the problem is that the children of Judah, they had their hearts that were so hard. You think about that when you're out in the desert and, and you know, the, the sun beats down on you, your, your skin just gets so hard, it's cracking, nothing to oil it, nothing to hydrate it. You're, and, that, and then that's the way it is. The heart has been far from the water of God's word. Their decisions were based on what the false prophets were saying, the false the priests and all the, the, the religious leaders, they were prophesying false, but they were eating it up because they wanted it to be so. They didn't care. Their hearts had not been taken care of. See, the responsibility of our heart, the condition of our heart is our responsibility. It's each of us. To each of us have a responsibility to make sure that the things in our hearts, when we come on Sundays and Wednesdays, that our hearts get the stuff out to our Lord and plant your word into my life. And then for the most part, it keeps us that way. And when we get into word and our devotions, we spend time with God. It's like, God, I, you know, clear my heart. That's, pray through repentance, you know, Lord, search my heart. It's like the psalmist would say, and know me, if there be any wicked way in me, lead me to the way of everlasting. I don't want to be there. I want to just repent of this stuff. Jeremiah earlier penned about the children of Judah in, in chapter 11, verse 8. He said, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his heart, of his, excuse me, of his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, which they, which they, but which they have not done. So I'd already told them, you know, your hearts are evil. And he, it's not the first time nor the second time. The 14th chapter, verse 14, he said, the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesied lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken uh, spoken to them. They prophesied to you a false vision, divination, and worthless things, and the deceit of their heart. So it's like their heart was reaching, the, the evil heart was just reaching out and planting evil in the hearts of the people. They, the people didn't care. Last week in <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 12, <clears throat> He says, and you have done worse than your fathers for behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. And he's speaking of the Lord. Nobody's listening to the Lord. The Lord says, listen, I, gotta, I, got, I have the cure for that hardened heart. I have the cure that will come in and just nurture that heart. Just think of a little crevice or a crack in the heart. His word going, his grace goes, and it can do a lot of work. But where the heart is just so hard, and it's not tended to, it's just nothing but evil. It's bent on doing evil. It's not going to want the things of the Lord. And that's where they're at right now. Remember in Genesis 6 chapter, it didn't take long for, not only for man to fall, but it didn't take long for God to come up and say, you know what, I'm going to flood the earth. And remember what he said, the Lord said in Genesis 6, he said, 
Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's bad. That's, that's, that's what it's bent on. You think of where we're at today. And think of, he says, as in the days of Noah. So you think about the nation that we live in and how just bad things are going to get and how worse they're going to get. But they were evil continually. The, every th the, the thought, the intent of the thoughts of, the, of his heart. Their decision making is then bent on that. 60 million kids aborted. The heart of men, evil. Marriages, children left for fatherless and motherless. Locked in their homes, sleeping in their cars, or whatever the situation. I know some of that's situational, but let me just say that. Look at the situation is we need to insert Christ into these situations. And as far as knowing the heart and testing the mind, we can't get anything by him, but he's there to help. In Acts 1, when the disciples were making a decision to pick up another apostle and replace of Judah, they called upon the Lord and they prayed. And it says this in Acts 1.24, and they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. So, what the, the, they refer to the Lord as the one who knows the heart. The God who knows the heart. It's not hidden from them. And it, it might be scary to, that, that the Lord knows our hearts, right? But isn't it so good that he doesn't shy away from us and he's desiring to pour out his grace and his love? That's the Lord. I mean, you get into some of these things that are so legalistic, it's like they want to beat you over the you know, over the head with the, with the scriptures. But God is saying, but if you turn to me, if you turn to me, and, and listen, let me say this, because we wrestle in our hearts, it doesn't mean that we're not saved, but our wrestling testifies that we have a heart, we're having a battle within. We wrestle in our hearts just because we invited the spirit of God in. The spirit of God says, and it says that the flesh wrestles with the spirit. The flesh is always there to wrestle with the spirit. The flesh wants its way. But it doesn't mean that we're not saved. Oh, no, I'm an evil person. It means that there's a battle going on. And there will be until the day we go home to be with Jesus. Or there's going to be a battle going on. But we're going to give in to the spirit. We're going to give in and the Lord help me through this. So he says, you know, once again, he says, you know, don't trust in your own heart. And then he tells them in verse 11, he says, don't trust in riches. He says, as a partridge that broods or sits on eggs he's hatching but doesn't hatch he's going to sit on eggs so is he who gets riches but not by right i will leave him in the midst of his days and at his end he will be a fool you ever notice that you can't when you die you can't take money with you it's not going to happen i don't care if people are buried in their corvette Buried in their piano case or whatever. <laughs> you, you're not enjoying that. May as well leave it to me. If you have a Corvette. But I'm just saying, you know, money can't save you. <laughs> Instead of coming, it's going to go. It's just going to be one of those things that, you know what, you, you purchase these things, brings you this temporal enjoyment. But the Lord is referring to here is a, if a partridge is hatched and the egg, the, the eggs of another bird, the offspring would soon desert. Um, 
the, the mother and fly away. They're not going to stick around. And he's saying this is like wealth. If you get wealth in a, in a, in a manner to where you're gathering wealth and um, you're going to inquire wealth, it's, it's going to be taken away. And you, you can't hoard it. You know, you're not going to be able to save it. Listen, it's going to be, you're going to be exposed as a fool. That's what he's saying. And then in verse 12, there's another failure, and the failure is to not trust in the Lord. So Jeremiah takes his time. And in verse 12, he begins, he begins to look up, if you will. He says, a glorious high throne from the beginning. So he's looking at a throne, something that has some substance, some longevity. And that's the throne of God. That's God himself. You think of the throne that he has, the throne that he's looking up to, he says, in the place of our sanctuary. So he's referring to this glorious high throne where we can have rest. It's not in money. It's not in our own hearts. It's not in, the, in, in other people. It's in Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to find our rest. It's a place of safety to keep us from danger. When we go to the Lord, when we come to him and, and we come to the throne and we receive grace and mercy in time of need, we're so needful. When we'd be beating ourselves up, beating up by others, beating up, getting beat up by the world, but that we come to the Lord, we come to his throne and we receive what we need in the time of need. And see, when all is not feeling so up and promising in this world, then we look to the throne, the, the glorious high throne. Again, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. Jesus will always be on the throne. Verse 13, he says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. This is what God desires to bless with our lives. To have fountains of living water. I want to make your life being lived like a, we see all the waters around here. So they're almost, not quite a flood stage, but they're there. We have all the rain we've been getting, the rivers are high, and they're just they're tracking down there. You throw a, a bobber in the water and it's going downstream. But Judah has looked into things, the folly of trusting men, the folly of trusting ourselves. And here he looks at the Lord and says, listen, there's a hope. There's a hope, the hope of Israel. Because he's the only true hope and the true source of hope that any of us could ever trust in. See, Jeremiah has, has seen the fallout of men who have refused to trust in the Lord. He's looking at them. He's looking at a nation who has been so blessed by God, but they're not listening. So blessed by the Lord, but they're just not listening. And they're, the fallout of men, they haven't trusted in the Lord, and instead they've gone away and placed their trust in everything but God. God tells me that though in Ephesians chapter 2, we walked in the wickedness of the world, and he gives us you know that whole um, testimony of Paul does of, of just our lives, really, before Christ, when he says that, he says, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also <clears throat> we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others, but Verse 4, but God, but God intervened. 
And he's saying, you know, there's no help out there in the world. There's no help out there. You guys have heard of stories. I do not kid when I say, I used to come home at night and look in the mirror saying, man, how are you going to help yourself? I used to talk to myself like that. You say, oh, you were stoned. Yeah, I was. But, but, but I was meaningful. I was wanting to get off this stuff, you know. And I was looking at it. I'd look up there and say, you know, hey, what are you going to do? I had no answers. And I would say, God, if you're real, you got to help me. And he did. But it, that's just the way it is. Like, you know what? It's not riches. It's not anybody else. And it's foolish not to trust in God because he's the only one that can say, I have the answers. I'm your hope. And there's a glorious high throne and it's been around since the very beginning. And, and he's there. And, and he's wanting to help. Imagine the power that they have. You know, we have drug and alcohol classes and all these things and more power to them. But, you know, when we place our faith in God, he's been around for the longest time. And he has all the answers. John chapter 1, in the Gospel of John, he says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so look, if we place our faith in somebody who has created us, he's been around forever. And we can have confidence in that. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Jeremiah, again, he's seen the fallout of men who haven't done this. I, see, I hate to see it because many of you, if not all of us, have seen somebody that has walked with the Lord for some time and then backslidden. And you see the dangers. You see them falling away from God. You see them falling away from their families. You see husbands and wives split up. You see children aimlessly walking around because they have no hope. They think they're the reason mommy and daddy didn't get along. <coughs> and that the reason why they're... And, and, and it says, uh, Jeremiah says, even in the midst of everything else, look up. I love this because in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, I love this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he comes, here's the answer. The answer to come to earth, behold the Lamb of God. There's one who is mightier than our problems. There's one who are mightier than Judah who constantly was telling them, I've got you if you just turn to me. i got you. And he sits on the throne. In Revelation chapter 4, right after the letters to the churches uh, in chapters 2 and 3, Revelation chapter 4, he says, After these things I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And, and the <clears throat> first voice was which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately, John says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one who sat on the throne. Jesus is upon the throne. And there isn't going to be any election or impeachment case for him. There isn't going to be any chance that he's going to be removed by office or from office. Listen, there may be some that won't allow them in the throne of their hearts, but that's their choice. There are many people that say, I have no room for the king, for the, for the king at the end of my heart. <clears throat> but, but he's on the throne. He always will be and always has been. So he's still there. And he's calling out today, even today, to say, you know what? Come, even backsliders, come. But that's, that's the operative, right? You got to come. You got to make a decision. 
And then in verse 14, you have Jeremiah's prayer. He says, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, and here's where the accusers come against Jeremiah. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. They're scorning him. They're turning on the messenger. The rebellious in Judah, act, they're acting as if, oh, I don't hear the Lord. But Jeremiah has been preaching this thing, but there's been a convoluted message because people have been saying, excuse me, people have been saying, oh, no, 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 no. Trouble's not coming. Peace, peace, brother. Peace, peace. Right? Imagine the people that are saying, listen, come the way you are, which is true, right? Come the way you are to church. Oh, yeah, come. You don't have to change anything. Just come. But when you come face to face with God and you say, you know what? This is his word. And he says, this is the way I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to stay that way. I'm not going to stay the way I came. Hey, oh, no, it's okay. Everybody's born again. Everybody goes to heaven. That's the false teachers of the day, false prophets of the day. Oh, everybody's, well, oh, it's okay, man. And I sat with them and I've listened to their messages that how they deceive people. Oh, you don't have to be born again. Everybody's born again now that Jesus died. Are you kidding me right now? Everybody. So Hitler's born again. Oh, well, well, yeah, I mean, you know, Listen, the rebellious were that, they were saying that, you know, the word of the Lord. Oh, yeah. Where's the word of the Lord? And they began to say, you know what? He's not speaking. Well, he is speaking. The words are very crystal clear. Here, Jeremiah begins to point out their folly and his goodness. Look at verse 16. He says, as for me, I have not hurried away from, the, from being a shepherd who follows you. Nor have I desired the woeful day. So he's saying, you know what? I don't really want to see him get in trouble. I don't want to see them be chasing, uh, being chastened. I don't look forward to that day. And he goes on, he says, you know what came out of my lips and what is right, before, uh, right there before you. <clears throat> Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Uh, let them be ashamed to persecute me and do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, Do not, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. So he gets to that place if you know what. Uh, maybe it is best that you take it out on them. Maybe you can relate to that. Lord, give them a whip. Give them the whipping they deserve. Verse 19, he says, says then the Lord said to, Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the king of Judah come in and by which they go out and at all the gates of Jerusalem and say to them, Hear to the word of the Lord, you, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take heed to yourself and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring in Bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of the house, out of your houses on a Sabbath day, nor do, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I command your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff that they might not hear nor receive instruction." So one of the examples that the Lord is pointing out here, Jeremiah says, you know what? They're not even honoring the Sabbath. It was a day, remember, when they were brought out of the uh, land of Egypt. They were told, you know, for six days, you go ahead and you get your 
you know, you pick up your harvest on the seventh day, you're on the sixth day, you're going to pick up double the harvest because it'll be moldy. The manna will be moldy on the seventh day. And it had this way of God saying, you know, I'll take care of it. I want you to rest. <laughs> but if they picked up any more than their allotment or what they needed every day of the week, that it would just spoil. But somehow on the sixth day, when God said pick up double the amount uh, so, so you can have some for the Sunday, it never spoiled. It just had, that was God's provision. And the same thing was, you know, you think about the, the Sabbath, the same thing was uh, j just the Lord directing their steps. It was the Lord taking care of it. But one of the examples, they weren't keeping the Sabbath. And they hadn't kept it for a long time. They weren't listening. So they're reaping that to which they have sown. Look at verse 24. And it shall be if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it. Then shall enter the gates of the city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses. They have uh, they and their princes accompanied by uh, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem from the land of Benjamin and from the lowlands, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, uh, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carry a burden when uh, entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, <clears throat> then I will kindle a fire in its gates. And, it's and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So here's the choice. He's given a choice. Obey me. And it wasn't just the Sabbath, but it was just everything. It was This was an example. Everything in her life, there was no obedience there. And in the midst of their rebellion, the Lord points out the faithfulness, uh, the, even their faithfulness to the law would bring them back to this place of blessing. You, you begin, you, if you're faithful, if you turn your wicked hearts, you come back to me. You begin to show. It's a, the keeping of the law it would be a way of showing your gratitude towards the Lord. But they needed to be willing to obey. They need to be willing to keep his commandments, but they refused to obey. And when because of that, that fire of judgment would come and it would consume them. They're not going to have any defense for it. See, for you and I, we don't have, we're not bound by keeping the Sabbath. <clears throat> we are blessed because we, well, we meet on Sundays and that's because the Lord's day, the day he was resurrected. But we have Jesus as our rest. We have him to be our rest for us. That when we're tired, we're wore out. He's the source. He's the source. You see, what they would do is even in their lands that they were to go in and they would six years that they would, you know, till the crops and on the, they would give them a bumper crop. And then on the seventh day, seventh year, they would let the land rest. Well, they didn't do that for a while. So they had to pay the Lord 70, 70 years. Then they would go into captivity. But for you and I, we see the Lord is our rest. Jesus is our rest. Hebrews 4, 9 says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who, he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from him. I don't have to do it. I don't have to, you know, keep the righteousness of the law. You know, it's just like I'm living it out with God. 
And so Jesus offers a rest like no amount of, you know, ever amount of days off will ever give us. And that's, we're resting him. We're not required to work to find our rest in him, but in him, we have the rest we need. So look at verse 18. We'll pick this up rather quickly. <laughs> the lesson at the potter's house in verse one, he says, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, uh, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will cause you to hear my words. And then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. Can tell what it was. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred and in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as this seemed good to the potter to make. So this is Jeremiah's ninth parable in the Old Testament in these series of parables. And Jeremiah is watching, and as he's watching, he sees something that the clay is marred. And it's a picture of Judah. They got problems. They're marred. But aren't we all marred? Every one of us are marred, right? We got problems. <laughs> we got issues. But if they would remain in the potter's hands, if you allow him, and this takes faith, does it not? To allow him to do the work regardless that he's doing. He'll add a little water in life, soften up the clay, and he'll do that work in them. And, and he'll make it into a vessel. He says, it seemed good for the potter. Whatever he's doing. Sometimes, I, a lot of times, I don't understand what he's doing. I just have to go along for the ride. God, I got to trust you, you know. But let him do the work. And that's what it is. We're to remain in the, in the center of his will. It's like the center of the potter's wheel. And we're just sitting there. We're, we're, you know, we know that we're marred. Jeremiah sees that in, in Judah. They're marred. But he's, he doesn't throw any of it away. And it's a picture of God's sovereignty dealing with Judah. He has his hands upon them. The breaking of the clay would be God's impending judgment. So imagine that. The only way, if the clay is so hard, for it to become pliable again, is you've got to break it down in the finest granules. You have to get it down to that dust and then start working it over again. But if you remain pliable, even though that he makes changes in our lives, he's still at work and it's much easier. It doesn't hurt so bad. Now, this is the same for you and I. We're all flawed, but we remain on the potter's wheel. We allow God to do the work. And here's the picture in verse 5. When the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Can I just do whatever he's making? The clay doesn't know what the potter potter's making. Look at the clay is in, a hand, is in the potter's hands. So are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning the kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent from the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak uh, concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight, so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent. Then I will relent concerning the good which I have said I would benefit it. You see, the desire was the Lord that he wanted to create a vessel. His signature is all on it, made by God, you know, created by God. But because of their rejection, of his attempts to get them to turn from their evil ways, he would raise up, and he had every right to do so, a nation that is going to crush them. They're hard. They're hard. And it's like into a potter who's crushed the, 
you know, crushes that clay and he starts all over. It's, it's just got to come to this nothing. But if they would return to him, then he would relent from the disaster. And God is the God of his word. See, the Lord was calling out a rebellious people once again to turn back to him. I mean, his desire, look, you're marred. He understands that. He's, you're, on a, you're on the potter's wheel. He understands that. But in his hands, the clay is moldable. It's pliable. And he, his desire is not to punish, but rather to lavish with grace. I think people in the world today, they have this idea that, that maybe they're not walking with the Lord. They have this idea that God wants to punish. Oh, he will punish. And there are times when he chastens, right? But, but he wants to pour his grace out. He wants to pour his grace out. And it's no different in, in our life, your life, mine, the same way. Look at verse 11, because there's a call to the people. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every one of you from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. There's a call. Turn back to me. That's the Lord. It doesn't matter how far a person has gone, right? Just turn back. They may have condemnation, may be feeling stupid about the things they've done. Well, turn back. You know, somebody says... They told me years ago, I've heard, and I've heard this on several occasions, you see somebody that hasn't, you know, they walked away from the Lord, and their, their thought is this, I can't come back to, I can't come back to that church, I'll be embarrassed. I say, are you kidding me? You'll be embarrassed? You're missed, repent of your sin, and don't worry about where, you're, where, where you've been, now it's where you're going. The church should welcome you with open arms. So there's a call to the people. The consequences are devastating, but God desires to save. Look at verse 12. Here's the response of the people. And they said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and and we will, everyone, obey the dictates of of his evil heart. I mean, that's sad, isn't it? Here it is that God desires for a backslider to come back to him by his grace but they want to keep on going backside. They don't want to turn. They're just, oh, I'm bent on doing this. That's hopeless. They don't, I don't know if they don't think that God is not a man of his word or God of his word. You know, I don't think, maybe they're thinking, well, you know what he says? I don't believe it. See, it takes faith to believe him, does it not? I mean, some people believe that this place was evolution, brought into existence. That's kind of dumb. But, but listen, you have this idea of saying, you know, I could trust in God. If God created me to have a relationship with me, he knows that I blow, I'm coming back to him. You see, because of their evil hearts, self become more important. Their desire, they didn't have faith in God, they couldn't trust in God. It's a sad verse. And they were stubborn, and instead of taking heed to his plea for them to come back to him, they were going to follow their evil hearts. And look at the Lord's response in verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ask now among the Gentiles. I mean, he, you know what he's saying? Go ask the Gentiles. They got all these pagan gods. If they had the opportunity I'm giving you, they'd turn. They wouldn't act like you guys. Who has heard such things? The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which come from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Then the cold waters, the snow waters of Lebanon were 
you know, more dependable, it's saying, than the fickleness of the hearts of the people of Judah. Because my people have forgotten me. Verse 15, they have burned incense to worthless idols. And they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways, in their ancient paths, to walk in the pathways and not, and not on a highway. To make the land desolate and a perpetual hissing, everyone has uh, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as as with an east wind before the enemy, and I will show them the back and not the face in the days of their calamity. Listen, the Gentiles would have these stupid gods like Dagon the fish god. Remember, we read about that earlier where they're trying to tack their gods up and you know, stand up, and they can't even stand up. But the Gentiles don't have a God who say, come back to me. They don't have the power to free them, forgive them, and leave them without guilt. It's like, listen, come to me. But they don't want to do that. And because of their decision, the Lord's going to bring this calamity upon them. <laughs> Once again, they're only reaping that to which they have sown. When God calls out to anyone, his grace, he wants, to, he wants his grace to replace and wash over their sins and their lives. He wants that to take place. They're once hard and hard to become soft. The only the grace of God is able to reside in a heart that heavy, that hardened. You know, there's a story about a, uh, the abound, it's called the abounding ability of God's grace. It's a tradition from Jonathan Edwards, the third president of Princeton, the America's greatest thinker, had a daughter with an ungovernable temper. But as it so often was the case, the infirmity was not known to the outside world and the, a worthy young man fell in love with his daughter and sought her hand in marriage. You can't have her, said Jonathan Edwards very abruptly. But I love her, the young man replied. You can't have her, said Edwards. But she loves me, replied the young man. Again, Edward said, you can't have her. The young man looked at him and said, why? And he was answered, because she is not worthy of you. But he asked, she's a Christian, is she not? Yes, she is a Christian, but the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. God's grace. God's grace is the very thing that take up residency. I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful for the grace of God. And then let's close in verse 18. The, the, the plot. They said, come, the plot against Jeremiah. Come and let us devise the plans against Jeremiah. For the law <coughs> shall not perish from the, uh, for the law shall not perish from there is the priest, the counsel of the wise, nor the words uh, from the prophet. Come, let us attack him with the tongue and let us not give heed uh, to his words, uh, not give heed to any of his words. The three people that were devising this plan were the priest, the wise men, and the prophet. And they were like, Jeremiah's a minority here. They want to kill him. But listen, you can't kill the message. You can kill the messenger. You can't kill the message. You can't ever get rid of God. Verse 19, he says, give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit <coughs> for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them and turn away your wrath from them. 
So Jeremiah, as he hears the hearts and the threats, calls upon the Lord. He hears the threat. Man, look at it. And, and he asks for his remembrance to his faithfulness. I served you, Lord. And then Jeremiah had earlier asked the Lord to take away his wrath, but here it seems like he's asking to go forward with it. Lord, go for it. Therefore, verse 21, deliver up the children of the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved uh, of their children. Let their men be put to death and their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring us a, a troop suddenly upon them, for they have dug a pit <coughs> to take me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity. He's getting a little, uh, now go get them, Lord. Nor blot out their sins from your sight, but let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in your time of anger. Here he is. He's getting a little angrier. Sad enough with it. Some pretty direct words, but instead of taking vengeance upon those, you know, um, himself, he's, Lord, you go do it. They had rejected the Lord. They had rejected both God and his messenger. They had rejected the word of God. And Jeremiah could do no more for them. It's a tough situation. One last verse to close with, and I want to just share it as some application. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. For my sake, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for, they, or for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. And isn't that the truth? We're living in a day-to-day -to, -day to where we have to be consistent with the word, gracious, but yet speaking the truth in love. But those who will persecute us, they'll come against us, they'll come against you, they'll try and lay some things out there. You know what? There's a reward that we will get in heaven. Listen, this world is the worst it ever gets for us. We have heaven. We have heaven. So thankful for that. But in the meantime... We have God's grace, and we need God's grace to be poured out in this world that we live in. Mike, why don't you come up and close us in a worship. Father, we thank you. We hope you've enjoyed spending this time in God's Word, and our prayer is that you'll take it with you and apply it to your life. If you'd like to learn more about Calvary Longview, visit our website at cclongview.com. While you're there, you can find more teachings, request prayer, or even find out how you can get involved with what God is doing in our city. We hope you have an amazing day. We'll see you back here next time. And remember, Jesus loves you, and so do we.